Welcome to the Qalam Institute Podcast. You're listening to Lives of the Prophets by Mufti Hussein Thamani. Imagine spending two weeks, every day, morning and evening, with the Prophets of Allah. That's the vision behind Sirah Intensive. Every year, over a hundred people from all over the world come together to spend two weeks immersed in learning about the life and character of the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad wasallam. Sign up and get more information at sirahintensive.com. That's S-E-E-R-A-H intensive.com. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَضَحِقَتْ When they told her that don't be afraid, we're here for Lut people. What did Sarah do? فَضَحِقَتْ She? Literally, if we translate فَضَحِقَتْ, we would say she laughed. Did she laugh or not? There is a different uh, tafsir here, a different commentary. According to one commentary, فَضَحِقَتْ فَضَحِقَتْ أَيْ حَاضَتْ that when she said, when they said to her, don't fear, we are here for Lut salam's people, she laughed, meaning, she didn't laugh, the word dhahikat here actually means she started menstruating. How old is she now, by the way? Possibly 70 or 90 years old. No, yeah, 70 or 90 years old, at that point you're, uh, uh, you're, you're in menopause, you're no longer menstruating, but dhahikat, according to one tafsir actually is, she started menstruating. And menstruating means that now she has the ability to Deliver a child. So this is a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, and they, in Arabs, they use this a lot. They say, for example, ضَحِكَتِ arnab إِذَا حَاضَتْ That they'll say regarding a, um, a arnab or a, a um, rabbit, that it has ضَحِكَتْ ضَحِكَتْ means حَاضَتْ It's menstruating, meaning now its womb is in action, therefore it could give birth. Now another group of scholars, they say that ضَحِكَتْ actually means ضَحِكَتْ which is the more, most common usage of the word in the most common usage of the word which means to laugh, to smile she began to laugh and smile if it means to laugh and smile someone can ask, why was she laughing? you know, what was there that made her laugh? so there are multiple opinions on the issue the first thing, the scholars, they say the reason why she laughed لِقَوْلِهِمْ لَا تَخَفْ سُرُورًا بِالْأَمْرِ that when they said, don't be afraid she was so relieved that she laughed. Kind of like a person who's got a gun to your head and says, it's a water gun. And you're like, oh gosh, thank you. I thought you were going to blow my brains out. So kind of like that sort of a scenario. She was so relieved that she just laughed out like, ha, oh, thank you. Another opinion of the scholars, they say, the reason why she laughed is because sururan bil waladi, because she found out that she is going to have a child. As the ayah continues on and tells, and when she heard she was going to have a child, She's been waiting for a child for 70 years, 90 years. She has entered into menopause. She's no longer, um, she's no longer uh, and according to her mind, she can't deliver a child anymore. And after reaching that state of, uh, what do you call this, iyas, despondency, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then takes her back and gives her a child. So when she hears this, she's just so excited that she laughs and thanks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There is a weak opinion, but it's also an opinion shared on why she laughed. They say, the reason is because When that calf was placed in front of the angels, the angels rubbed their hand over the calf. That calf stood up and went back to its mother. And when Sarah saw this, When she saw this, she smiled and laughed. She said, wow. That was an awesome trick. That was really cool. And therefore, that's when they gave her glad tidings. And the reason why they did this was a matter of symbolism. 
that after something has dried and died, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala still has the ability to give it life. And you may think your womb has dried and died, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the ability to give it life. She was then given glad tidings of her child. Now, um, when she hears this, that she is being going to be given a child, she says, Ya a'alidu wa ana ajuzun wa ba'li shaykha. She's, she's in amaze, she's shocked. She says, how can I have a child? Look at me. You're talking to a lady who's every, you know, she's old now. Her skin is now wrinkled and her hair must be a different color than the hair that she was born with. And yet she says that, you know, you're telling me that I'm going to have a child? So how is that possible? You know, she's so shocked. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the angels then give her a response. But before they do, give her the, before we actually get into the response... Actually, no, they say to her, I'll just share the response. When she is so shocked and she says, I'm so old and my husband's an old man too. How are we going to have a child? They said to her, Are you amazed of the command of Allah? Do you think that's beyond Allah? So the first thing we learn from this statement of theirs is that um, you never should be amazed by the command of Allah. Things can happen that are beyond you. And when they happen, don't be in doubt of them. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has written for something to happen, it will happen. And that's the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, um, the ayah continues on. The angels after telling her that she should not be in doubt of Allah's command, she shouldn't be so amazed that Allah wants for something. They then said to her, That Allah's mercy and His barakat be upon you, the people of the family. Right? The people of the household. Ahlul Bayt. Let's cover the word Ahlul Bayt for a moment. Then we're going to come back to Rahmatullahi wa Barakatuh. So who, who are the angels talking to here? They're talking to who? Ibrahim salam and his wife Sarah. So there are two people. So Ahlul Bayt here, and they just given her glad tidings of a child as well. And the reason why this is an important discussion is because there are some people who are of the opinion that the word Ahlul Bayt does not apply to a person's wives. It only applies to those family members that are above them and those that are beneath them. So you'll note that some people when they talk about the Ahlul Bayt of the Prophet ﷺ, they say that it refers to his uncles, his cousins, because those are related to him from above. Uncle meaning his dad's brother, so again from above, his dad is above him, his brother and their children, Ali radiallahu anhu. So they say these are all Ahlul Bayt. And those that are underneath him, meaning for example, his daughters, his grandchildren, they say these are all Ahlul Bayt. But these people say that Ahlul Bayt are not the wives of the Prophet ﷺ. What do they say? The Ahlul Bayt are? Not the wives. We as the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah say this is not true. The wives are also inclusive in the word Ahlul Bayt. They're also a part of the family of a person. And our clear proof for this is this ayah right here. When the angels are making the dua for the people in front of them, who is standing in front of them? Ibrahim alayhi salam is there, agreed upon. They've just given him, given him glad tidings for the child, Ishaq alayhi salam. But who else is there? Sarah. And Sarah is Ibrahim alayhi salam's wife. So by extension, from this ayah here, we also learn that all of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, every one of them are considered amongst the Ahlul Bayt. And every virtue and honor that comes from Ahlul Bayt, it equally applies to all the wives of the Prophet ﷺ and the other family members too. Now the angels when they give a salam, they started off by saying a salam, that's where the gathering started, right? But where does it end? When they came, what did they say to the, what did they say to Ibrahim alayhi salam? Salam, that's it. 
Now when they get ready to leave, what are they saying to Ibrahim salam? They say the other part of it, Rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. This time they don't say salam. Have you noticed that? قَالُوا أَتَعَجَبِينَ مِنْ أَمْنِ اللَّهِ رَحْمَةُ اللَّهِ وَبَرَكَاتُهُ عَلَيْكُمْ أَهْلُ الْبَيْتِ When they first came, they only said as-salam, or just salaman, that's what they said. And now when they're leaving, they're not saying salam, they're saying رَحْمَةُ اللَّهِ وَبَرَكَاتُهُ Why is this? The scholars, they see the reason is because the salam part is implied, because that's the part of the dua they made when they came. And you note that when they made dua, what's the last part? They said barakatuh. Which means the end of the greeting of a Muslim is what? Barakatuh. And that's also a teaching of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Assalamu Alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa That's the end of the greeting. Some people they add more. They say, wa maghfiratuhu wa ridwanuhu wa tiba salawatuhu. And they go on and on and on. These things are not from the actual greeting. And not from the sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. There is a narration from Muhammad bin Amr bin Ata. He says, I was sitting by Abdullah bin Abbas radiallahu فَدَخَلَ عَلَيْهِ رَجُلٌ مِنْ أَهْلِ الْيَمَنِ A Yemeni man came to meet him. فَقَالَ السَّلَامُ عَلَيْكَ وَرَحْمَةُ اللَّهِ وَبَرَكَاتُهُ ثُمَّ زَادَ شَيْئًا مَعَ ذَلِكَ He said to Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu, السَّلَامُ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَةُ اللَّهِ وَبَرَكَاتُهُ And then he kept going on. He said a lot more stuff. فَقَالَ Ibn Abbas وَهُوَ يَوْمَئِذٍ قَدْ ذَهَبَ بَصَرُهُ Ibn Abbas that who is this person? Man hada. And the reason why he said who is this person is because Ibn Abbas at that time was blind himself. He couldn't see. Towards the end of Ibn Abbas anhu's life, he became he became blind. He couldn't see. Qalu al-Yamani that this was a Yemeni man. So Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu he said inna salam intaha ila al-barakah. He said the salam, the greeting ends at barakah. That's what we learned from the Prophet wasallam. And another famous narration to support this, and I won't cover all of it just very briefly, where the Prophet said that a person that says, Assalamu alaikum, 10 rewards, wa rahmatullah, how many rewards now? 20, and barakatuh is 30. And the hadith ends there, it doesn't come up with other words and continue the virtue. So from this, uh, this ver- these verses in Surah Hud, we learn so many gems, and there are so many lessons that we learned from the verses that describe the birth of Sayyidina Ishaq alayhi salam. Now regarding Ishaq alayhi salam, Allah, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa mentions in a hadith as narrated by Abu Hurairah radiallahu an, Al-Kareem ibn al-Kareem ibn al-Kareem ibn al-Kareem. The honorable one, the son of the honorable one, the son of the honorable one, the son of the honorable one. The companion son of Messenger of Allah, who is this? This is, the call, this is what we call the golden lineage. There is no lineage that is greater than this one. Kareem ibn al-Kareem ibn al-Kareem ibn al-Kareem. And who are these Kareems? Yusuf alayhi salam, the son of? Yusuf alayhi salam is a prophet of Allah. Yaqub alayhi salam, his father was also a prophet of Allah. His grandfather, Ishaq alayhi salam, is also a prophet of Allah. And his father, Ibrahim alayhi salam, is also a? I mean, that's some serious wisdom in that lineage. There are some of us who are sitting in this gathering who don't come from families of scholarship. Our parents, grandparents, there weren't necessarily any scholars and our forefathers. For those of us, we're always searching for wisdom in other places, in particular YouTube. But then there are those of us who, came, who come from a family of scholarship. Our uncle, our grandfather, maybe our, our one of our relatives, maybe the neighbor, there were some people who we were surrounded by who were scholars. And because we grew up in their presence, we already have a lot of wisdom that we learned from them. There was a, a radio interview of Mufti Shafi'i Uthmani rahmatullahi alayhi. 
it's on YouTube. It's actually uploaded on YouTube. I know that sounds really interesting because he was a senior scholar, and I didn't even know that there was recording um, equipment around at that time. But nonetheless, there's an audio recording of his on YouTube, and it's an interview. And the interviewer asked him, um, introduce yourself. And Mufti Shafi Uthmani is a ginormous scholar, right? He is a huge scholar. So when he's introducing himself, he says that I am a person who I was a young, he says, I was a young child, he's introducing himself. I was a young child who was blessed to grow up in a city where pious people used to glance at me as I played in the streets. How does he introduce himself? I was a young child who was blessed with the opportunity to grow up in a city in which the pious people used to glance at me as I played in the city. And when I heard that, I said to myself, wow, that's all I can think of. What he's saying is that I grew up in an environment that even when I was playing, I saw how the scholars looked at me. There was like a transition of barakah, if you wish to say, right? Or, you know, if a person has a tough time believing in barakah and that on, great. But at least, you know, being in their presence and taking their du'as. And you know, when you see a young child, you know, what does every heart say? You make, you make du'a for a young child, right? So being in the presence. Now, Ibrahim alayhi salam, I'm sorry, Yusuf alayhi salam's father is who? Not just the brother who gives adhan in the masjid or someone who studied, you know, a one-year Arabic program in our community, sheikh, right? He's sitting, he's born, he, grew up in a he grows up in a house of a prophet of Allah. That is insane. The barakah, the barakah factor is to the roof. Okay? But not only that, his grandfather is also a prophet of Allah. He built Baytul Maqdis with his father. And then his great-grandfather is also a prophet of Allah. And not just any prophet of Allah, his great-grandfather is Ibrahim salam. And imagine their ranks, all of their names are mentioned in the Qur'an, not once but multiple times their names are mentioned in the Qur'an. You can imagine here Ishaq salam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent Ishaq salam as a prophet to the people of Qan'an. He lived there for a while in what we would call the lands of Sham in Palestine. And he remained there for a while, inviting them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, teaching them the law of the Sharia as was revealed to him and also to his father Ibrahim alayhi salam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he mentions in the Qur'an, وَذْكُرْ عِبَادَنَا إِبْرَاهِيمَ وَإِسْحَاقَ وَيَعْقُوبُ أُولِ الْأَيْدِي وَالْأَبْصَارِ In Surah Sad. And أُولِ الْأَيْدِي means, Allah, when Allah describes Ishaq alayhi salam, Ya'qub and Ibrahim, He says, أُولِ الْأَيْدِي أُولِ الْأَيْدِي means the people of hands. أُولِ الْأَبْصَارِ means the people of sight. People of hands meaning these people, they were strong when it came to obeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. أَصْحَابُ الْقُوَّةِ فِي الطَّاعَةِ These were people who were strong when it came to worshipping Allah. And these were people of far sight when it came to knowledge and when it came to religious matters. Ibrahim salam instructed his son Ishaq salam to marry from their family. Therefore, Ishaq salam married his cousin. He married the daughter of his uncle. And her name is Rafqa. And in English they call her Rebecca. Right? Rafqa. That's his, that's his wife. This is the wife of Ishaq salam. And from his wife Rafqa, he is blessed with two children. And both children are born through one delivery, meaning he was blessed with twins. Yes. Who were the twins? Their names are Isu and Ya'qub. Isu and Ya'qub. This much we learn from many narrations. This much right here that Ishaq was blessed with two children, and they were twins, Isu and Ya'qub. We find this from many different sources.
However, what you'll notice is that in certain biblical um, uh, terms or in their references, in their text, you'll find that they share some very exotic stories regarding these two brothers. Yaqub and his brother Isu. Isu was older, he was born a few moments earlier, a few minutes earlier. And Yaqub was born second. And Aqib means that which comes after. So Yaqub is the one who comes after. He was the younger of the two. So for example, some of the stories that, the, that you'll find in the Judeo-Christian um, traditions, for example, they'll say that Isu was beloved to Yaqub I'm sorry, Isu was beloved to Ishaq and Yaqub was beloved to his mother. So one was a favorite of one, the other was a favorite of the other. Ishaq became old, his eyesight became very weak. He told to his son Isu that, Oh my son, go and prepare some food for me and uh, feed it to me and I will make a dua for you. So the mother overheard it and she noticed that the dua was going to be something special. So she went to Yaqub and she said to her that you go and make the food quickly. So he went and, and went on the hunting trip, he brought the animal in, he cooked it and brought it to his father. Ishaq was very old, his eyesight was very weak, he didn't recognize which twin it was, kind of like a Bollywood movie, right? Oh, which one is it? Oh man, it's not Isu, maybe it's Yaqub. So he, felt, he, he was under the impression that it was Yaqub right? He thought it was Isu, but in reality it was Yaqub. This is all bogus by the way, just to make it clear. And then what happens is that Yaqub eats the food and he's like, oh my God, the Shah Masala is so delicious. He got so impressed by the cooking skills that he made the dua and he made dua that his son Yaqub be given prophethood when in reality he thought it was Isu. And Yaqub duped his brother and became the prophet. You guys understand how horrible the story is? Right? It's as if he cheaped him out, like he was racing and then he just put a hole in that guy's tire and, and sped past him. The story doesn't end there. Isu comes home and finds out that his dad already had the meal and his brother just duped him. So he gets very angry and he says to his brother, Tomorrow I will meet you in the battlefield and I will kill you. Yaqub He is terrified of the threat, so he runs away far. And he lives in a faraway land where he lives for a very long time. And then decades later, he says, It's time for me to come to truce with my brother and ask him for forgiveness. So he brings, an, he brings a huge uh, um, amount of wealth with him as a gift and he presents it to his brother and his brother accepts it. And it's a whole drama story. And it's so problematic. It's so problematic. Let's not look at the Sanad. Let's not look at the chain of narrators. Because if we do that, that's, this narration obviously won't stand any chance at all. It's wahi. But even if you, just look, if you just look at the meaning, is it acceptable for a mind of a believer, someone who reveres and respects a prophet, to even believe that Yaqub would dupe his father? I mean, does that even make any sense? That's such a horrible claim. And then to believe that Ishaq made a mistake because he couldn't see. Right? Oh my God, which one is it? I'm not sure. Let's just make the dua anyway. And he made the dua. And for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give, give, give profit to the wrong person. I mean, this is so kufri, it's so blasphemous. That's why we, when it comes to these narrations, some even go as far as saying that they, these two brothers, they had, they say, Isu was haqudan, hasudan, that he was very jealous of his brother. Wallahu alam, we don't know of any of this. What we do know from history is that Yaqub is a son of Ishaq We know that. We know that as we know regarding all prophets that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala selects them very carefully. These are unique individuals. Their prophethood was written before they were born in this world, before they, before they even came to this world, just as all other matters of taqdeer are also written. Now one of the things that, Ibrahim, that Ishaq contributed towards is that he assisted his father Ibrahim 
in building Masjid Al-Aqsa. Anyone know what Masjid Al-Aqsa is? What's Masjid Al-Aqsa? What today is known as Al-Quds in Jerusalem, Palestine, Palestine. It's one of the three harams. There are three sanctuaries on the earth. Makkah Mukarramah, Medina Munawwara, and Al-Quds. And if you were to list them chronologically, it would be Makkah Mukarramah, the haram, Al-Quds, the second, and the third would be Al-Madinah, Al-Munawwara, Masjid al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the mosque of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Why is it called Masjid Al-Aqsa? Because Al-Aqsa means the furthest, the furthest mosque. The reason why the Arabs called it Masjid Al-Aqsa is because the Arabs consider that to be the furthest point for them to travel for religious purposes. Beyond Masjid Al-Aqsa, they never traveled anywhere for religious purposes. All of their religious rituals were fulfilled within Arabia, but they would go to Sham to, to visit the Aqsa, the Quds there, but not beyond that. That's why that's called Masjid Al-Aqsa, meaning the furthest place of worship that they would travel to. This is a place that every Muslim should make intention to travel to and pray to Rakadr. Inshallah, make an intention. Enough people from America don't go because they're afraid they'll be held up at the border and they'll be, uh, they'll be questioned and detained for long periods of time. If you haven't done anything wrong, no one can hold you accountable for visiting a site that you consider to be holy. Is that right or wrong? Have you done anything wrong? Are you going to do anything wrong? Is there any crime in doing such that in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Not at all. Every human being should have this desire. And this is one thing I hope that we Muslims in America revolutionize. We, our Palestinian brothers are the only ones who go to Majd al-Aqsa or the Jordanian ones because it's next door. You, it's very hard to find someone from another, from another race, who, maybe from the subcontinent or from um, other parts of the Arabian world or from America itself, who says that I've gone to Majd al-Aqsa. This is something that we need to work on as a community and also change it. The hadith of Abu Dhar al-Ghifari which can be found in Bukhari, the Prophet he said that I asked the Prophet of Allah, O Messenger of Allah, ayyu masjidin, which mosque was placed first on the earth? Which is the first mosque? So the Prophet said, al-masjid al-haram, meaning the, the Kaaba, the masjid al-haram in Makkah Mukarramah. Qala kultu thumma ayy. Then I said, O Messenger of Allah, what, what about after that? He said, al-masjid al-aqsa. Majd al-Aqsa was the second one in Palestine. So he said, Kam kana baynahuma? O Messenger of Allah, how much time was there between the two? What was the gap between the two? Qala arba'una sanatan. The Prophet ﷺ said that 40 years. 40 years was the period between the two. Okay. So what we learn from this is that Makkah um, Mukarramah, the Haram comes first, and then after that, chronologically comes this built. Now who was the first person to build Majd al-Aqsa? Differences of opinion. Some scholars, they say it was Adam salam. In this scenario, Adam salam built Masjid the Kaaba first. And then after that, he came over and he built Masjid al-Aqsa. The second opinion is that it was Ibrahim salam. With his son Ismail, he built um, the Kaaba. And then with his second son Ishaq, he built Masjid al-Aqsa. And you can consider this to be like Ibrahim salam's legacy plan. This is where he wants whatever he's put together to continue on from. People will continue to learn from the center and will benefit from it, the spiritual benefit. Some scholars, they say that um, Dawud began rebuilding Majd al-Aqsa after Ibrahim and Sulaiman was the one who finally completed it. And we'll talk about Majd al-Aqsa and its virtue in a lot more detail in the story of Sayyidina Sulaiman inshallah. Okay, we'll, we'll discover that, there. we'll cover that there. Two things I'll mention regarding Majd al-Aqsa before I close off by just mentioning two points up regarding Ibrahim alayhi salam's passing away because that'll cover the end of his life. 
The first thing is that um, this is the actually when Umar radiallahu's armies came to conquer Majd al-Aqsa, Umar radiallahu came himself from Medina Munawwara for the conquest itself. And when he arrived, when he walked through the cities of today what is known as Palestine, in those days they called it Sham or Ard al-Muqaddasa, as he entered into the land, when he came to the site where Majd al-Aqsa was, it was a dump. The inhabitants of that city at the time had no honor for it. They used it as a garbage area. They would throw their trash and garbage there. And when prayer time came for Umar radiallahu anh, the priest told Umar radiallahu anh, why don't you come inside our church and pray? Umar radiallahu anh said no. They said, why? He said, first of all, I would like to make it clear that I will not take a place of worship for Allah in a place where Allah is not worshipped. Meaning where other than Allah is being worshipped, I don't want to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala there. And because they're going to have idols there and so on. And the second thing, idols meaning um, sculptures of, of whatever they consider Isa alayhi salam, their European image of Isa alayhi salam to be, that's going to be there. So he wanted to avoid that. And the second thing he said to them is that if I pray here, Muslims will desire to make this into a place of worship one day, and therefore they will destroy your church. And Muslims do not destroy places of worship. Therefore, he does not pray there. They said, where will you pray? He said, I will pray in a place that, was significant to, that is significant to us as Muslims, the place where the Prophet went on the night of ascension from. He said, take me to Majd al-Aqsa, where Majd al-Aqsa was, that area. And they took him to that area, and there was like a little dump area there. And Umar radiallahu anh, he said to the companions, this is the place where the Prophet led the other Prophets in prayer. And this is the state of that place. Let us clean it, give the adhan, and pray here. And Umar radiallahu anh, he cleaned up that historical site with his hands and other companions. That's why I tell people, when I go for Hajj and Umrah, if I go for Hajj and Umrah, I have one habit, one strict habit that I stick to. If we as a group go to visit a historical site, where something significant happened in the Prophet's life, and if that place is not clean, we stop and clean it. You guys understand that? And I encourage everyone to do that. If, for example, you have the opportunity to climb the cave and the mountain of Nur, and you reach the cave of Hira, and someone left behind a wrapper from a Twix bar, and as absurd and as insane as that sounds, trust me, there's a lot worse than wrappers of Twix bars there. Should you just walk away from it? What's the sunnah of Umar radiallahu anh? You preserve historical sites. For those people who are against it, and they quote Umar radiallahu anh's narration of cutting down the tree of Bayatul Ridwan, they forget this narration. Umar radiallahu anh didn't just leave it as a dump site, he actually cleaned that place. He rehabbed that place, he fixed it up. When, for, when we went to Umrah last year with the Qalam Institute group, we had a bunch of teachers and students who were there. We came to the place of Bayatul Ridwan. You know where the Prophet took the allegiance from the companions? And the Qur'an talks about that we came to that exact place. We were in Hudaybiyah. And we were there because a part of our group, what we do is, along with 10 days of Umrah, we covered the full seerah, cover to cover. We, we have lectures during the day, we covered the seerah. And at places where we can go and tell the story, we go there and tell the story. So when it came time to share the story of Hudaybiyah, we went to the side of Hudaybiyah and we had a whole dars there. We had an opportunity to block off the masjid. The group came there, we sat, we talked. So... After the dars was done, I said to the students, I will take you now to the place where the Prophet actually took allegiance at the from the companions to seek revenge of what they supposedly thought was a murder of Uthman bin Affan an. So when we came there, it was a dump. So much garbage there, so much dirt there. It was so bad, I can't even tell you. There were 120 of us standing there. 
I said that it would be a crime for us to leave without cleaning this place. Let us Muslims of America today clean the place that the Prophet once sat in and the angels once witnessed and the Qur'an revealed verses regarding let us Let that be our sadaqah. And we gather together and we clean that holy site, that beautiful place. And by extension, if there is some virtue, if there is some precedent of cleaning a site of, of virtue because something happened there, don't you think there's, there, there's, there's also benefit and virtue in cleaning the masjid too? Yes or no? Yes or no? There has to be, right? I mean, there are narrations of the Prophet ﷺ regarding this, that when a person picks up something from the, the hadiths in Ibn Majah, that when a person picks up something from the, the masjid that, that's harmful or that's not clean, that that will be a mahar for the hur in Jannah. There's a narration in Ibn Majah regarding this, right? But beyond that, um, we should make a habit of cleaning the masjid. When you're walking out of the masjid, when you're doing wudu, if you, saw, if you see someone, they left their tissue after wiping themselves down outside the garbage can, do you just walk past it? No, we don't do that. We fix it, we clean it. If you see someone left some garbage anywhere outside, here, there, or the other, it's not about whether it's mine or not. It's about we have to clean it. That's what we learn. And again, this is directly from Umar radiallahu anh. And the second interesting point regarding Majd al-Aqsa is that this is the place where um, Imam Ghazali rahmatullahi alayhi wrote his Ahya ulum al uh, which inshallah we'll talk about Majd al-Aqsa more when we come to Sayyidina Sulaiman alayhi salam story. So with that now, we move towards the end of our class. Ibrahim alayhi salam was alive when his wife Sarah passed away. Let's come to Ibrahim alayhi salam's life. Okay, no? We're back with Ibrahim alayhi salam's life. Um, Ibrahim alayhi salam was alive when his wife Sarah passed away. And after his wife Sarah passed away, there are narrations that tell us that he remarried again. And he married a lady by the name of uh, Qantura. And from her, he had multiple children. According to narrations, he had six children. And their names were Zamran, Yaqshan, Madan, Madian, Shiaq, and Shuh. These were the names of the children that Ibrahim had. However, these children, none of them were prophets. Bil ijma' by consensus of the scholars, the other children were not. They were not prophets of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Ibrahim passes away at the age of 175, and according to another narration, he was 200 years old when he passed away. After Ibrahim passed away, he's buried in that same um, um, Quds area, if you wish to say, that same Palestine area. If you go there, you'll find the grave of Ibrahim And his son Ishaq outlives him, and he passes away also in this Sham area at the age of 160, and according to another opinion, at the age of 180. And he is buried very close to his father and his mother as well. So this is a story of Sayyidina Ibrahim and his sons. We pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us tawfiq and ability to learn from their lessons and to benefit. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Muhammad, assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.